of old, the Lord's testimonies show that his truth stands eternal. Amen to that. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 40. In our Bibles, Isaiah chapter 40, beginning at verse 9 tonight. If you're using the Bibles there in the benches, page 1119. Isaiah 40, chapter 9, and reading through verse 28. The subject, as we confessed through Article 1 of the Belgic Confession, uh, of that article is God, quite simply. And uh, the words used to describe Him in Article 1 of the Confession uh, speak of His magnificence and his transcendence over all of his creation, which certainly is reflected in this prophetic section of God's word. This is the word of God, and we delight to hear it. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up and do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, hear is your God. You see, the Sovereign Lord comes with power and His arm rules for Him. See, His reward is with Him and His recompense accompanies Him. He tends His flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in His arms and carries them close to His heart. He gently leads those that have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand or with the breadth of His hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed Him as His counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten Him and who taught Him the right way? Who was it that taught Him knowledge or showed Him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before Him, all nations are as nothing. They are regarded by Him as worthless and less than nothing. To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare Him to? As for an idol, a craftsman casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. But do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth has been founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to nothing and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than He blows on them and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Now, who is my equal? Says the Holy One. Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all this? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls them each by name. Because of His great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? 
Do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God. He is the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary and his understanding no one can fathom. So far the reading of God's holy word. Beloved congregation in Christ and friends, we've charted out on our course to examine the Word of God as summarized in the Belgic Confession of Faith. And the last time we considered those opening lines of the Confession, and you can turn there again to page 70 in the back of the blue psalter behind the songs to be reminded of the opening line, we all believe with the heart and confess with the mouth. And a couple of reminders Things that we observed last week that will lead us into the topic itself of the God whom we confess tonight. First of all, you remember that this confession is given to the official members of a confessional church. Or another way of saying it is that this confession belongs to official members of a confessional church. This is not a list of beliefs that people may believe out there in the abstract. But this confession, as Many of its contents will later tell us, and as we examined briefly last week, belong to those who confess them as part of a local church community. It is the profession of members of the church. It is a profession of the officers also of the church. But we don't make a distinction somehow that the officers of the church, the pastors and the elders and the deacons believe it to some degree, and maybe the members believe it or not, who knows? No. We say that the pastors of a church believe the Word of God is summarized in the confession along with the elders and the deacons and the members. And that's reflected in all of our membership vows in the church. This is your confession. When you stand to take membership vows in a church that uses it to summarize the doctrine of the Scripture. And it is a faithful summary of the Word of God. When you say you believe the things that are confessed in here, you're not just saying that you think they're an accurate summary of what some people have believed in the past. And you're not just saying that it is a, a good idea to have these truths together to keep our community together, whether it be an ethnic community or whether it be a, a community that shares a certain amount of strong values. You're actually saying and confessing that the things that are described in this confession are true. They correspond with reality. The Bible and the truths of the Bible, as summarized in this confession, are not just a record of some people's religious experience. Some people believe that after all, there's only one God and there's many different religions, but they really all believe in the same God. And the difference in religions, all that is, is people experience that same one God in different ways. And you say, this is one way in which people experience the truth. And we say, no, that's not right. We say we believe this. We mean that it is true. And things that will go against what is taught in here, therefore, by definition, are not true. They are false. Believe this confession to be a faithful summary of the Word of God. We don't just mouth these words and hope, keep our fingers crossed that they're correct, and wow, if the pastor and the elders believe it, or the generations that have gone before us believe it, then hopefully it's true and and they can be right. No. We believe it for ourselves to be true, and we are not intellectually dishonest, confessing something that deep in our heart we really don't believe. Believe these things uh, to be true. Let me remind us of of the background of the composition of this confession. We did not address this at all last week. 
before and get into its uh, exact confession about who God is, it's good to remind ourselves where this confession uh, came from. We acknowledge, of course, as the confession does itself, that it is not inspired and inerrant. So there have been times in the history even of our own church as we uh, grow out of the Christian Reformed Church tradition that uh, that church, our church, saw fit when we studied the Word of God and came to more clarity on some issues to revise the confession of faith to be in greater conformity with the Word of God. Because after all, this confession is only valuable insofar as it summarizes the Word of God, which is true. But of course, those who composed this confession had the same desire and the passion that we do to see the Word of God defended. And they went to sometimes extraordinary means to see that uh, these truths could be summarized and defended in their own churches and in their own uh, communities. If you've ever uh, studied the Belgic Confession of Faith before, you know that the, uh, the current form that we have received, at least uh, the text behind the translation that we have, is often attributed to a guy named uh, Guy Debray or Guido Debray. And uh, he seemed to put uh, these uh, various articles together in the form that we have received, received them, at least the text that's behind uh, their translation. But if you go back before Guido Debray ever got a hold of this text and put it together as it stands today, we know that John Calvin himself is likely the chief author of this confession. It has surprised some people that given how influential John Calvin has been in the history of our churches and, of course, in the history of the entire Christian church, to uh, read the Scripture and to help explain it in very clear ways to God's people, uh, that he doesn't have a great role in the confessional tradition of the churches. But when you understand that he wrote, basically, in seed form, most of what we have in the Belgic Confession, then that answers uh, the problem. We do have this written uh, primarily at the hand of John Calvin. But there was a reason why Guido de Bray himself sat down and as Calvin had written these articles of the Confession and then they had spread out into the various countries on the continent of Europe and uh, many of them had been edited in different forms. Some people had added to them, some people had taken things away following their conscience and the Word of God in various places. There's a reason why Guido de Bray sat down examined all of the various strands of the edits of the Belgic confessions that were floating around out there around Europe. There's a reason why he sat down and put together the one that we have today, or at least uh, presumably the one that lies behind the translation that we have today. He did it because his church community was being accused of fighting the government. You understand that Guido de Bray was facing a political problem. He was a Christian minister who lived in Belgium. And the king who ruled over that area was a Roman Catholic king. It was Philip from, Fran from Spain, ruling over this region in Belgium. And the Roman Catholic members of King Philip II's court, of course, Philip is not on the scene from Spain, are putting a bug in his ear that people who believe the Protestant dogma ought to be, you ought to watch out for them. They wanted political power and they knew that King Philip wanted to maintain his political authority in Belgium and so they put a bug in his ear that the Protestants, by believing their Protestantism, actually caused anarchy and chaos and caused chronic civil war. They would tell 
the king things like, look what happened when people followed Martin Luther in Germany. What happened? It caused a peasants' revolt. And, of course, those who were fighting the peasants' revolt, many of them professed to believe in the Protestant gospel, and that Protestant gospel is found in the Belgic Confession of Faith. And you know what happens? If you want to revolt, Philip, then you'll allow this Protestant doctrine to be uh, propagated in Belgium. You don't want that, do you? Don't you forget, in the city of Munster, O king, that there was a group of Anabaptists, which the Roman Catholic people at that time called Protestants. They overthrew the city council, they became polygamists, and actually constructed a physical throne of David in the town, and they sat a man on there who pronounced the accurate interpretations of the Bible that nobody could dare argue against, and they defied all of the government, saying that they only served Christ the King. All Protestants are like that, King Philip. And so you better stamp out this Protestantism that is uh, among the churches that Debray is pastoring in the Low Countries. These Protestants are always causing chronic civil war. Just look at what's happening in France. The French Protestants versus the French Roman Catholics are fighting each other. You can't have peace in your land if there are Protestants in the land. So Debray was uh, sitting down to put this confession together on the one hand, of course, to profess the truth, but he's not doing it in the abstract. He's doing it to demonstrate, on the one hand, that a true biblical Protestant does not believe in overthrowing the government at any point. The Christians will always be willing to submit to the government. They're not looking for political power, are they? They're looking to be left alone and to be able to worship God according to their conscience. They will obey just government. And on the other hand, he is looking very clearly not to compromise. He's looking, for, looking to set forward the truth of God. He wants to distinguish himself. He has no problem distinguishing himself from all of the other kinds of re, uh, strong religious convictions, whether they be the Anabaptists or the Roman Catholics. And uh, so be it. If he thinks that our doctrine will lead to sedition and overthrowing the government, it doesn't matter because I will speak the truth which God has taught me. His confession belongs to a church under persecution. We don't face uh, the sword at this point. Maybe we will someday. Our brothers and sisters around the world who confess these things, many of them are slaughtered because they want to worship the true God. We are not. But this is a confession that belongs to pilgrims who are members of confessional churches. Whether we are persecuted by the government or just find ourselves at odds in our beliefs with every, everybody around us, this is what we believe. We all believe with the heart and confess with the mouth. The confession starts where it should, and that is with the topic of the God whom we profess to believe. We believe that there is one only simple and spiritual being that we call God, and He is eternal. And first of all, I want to have us consider that word incomprehensible. God is incomprehensible. And it's interesting that even as we begin to consider God, an attribute that we consider about Him, a word that describes Him incomprehensible, immediately puts us in our place. Now, just like the prophet Isaiah did as he was looking toward Jerusalem, who was thinking that she could get away with all of her sins and the Lord would not see her. And, he need, and she needed to be reminded that God could see everything and He would never grow tired. And He would rise to respond in justice 
to all of their evil and even to comfort those who had been offended. We also need to be put in our place when we begin to consider the truth about God and God Himself because He is incomprehensible. And what that means is is that our knowledge of God is limited. Our knowledge of God is limited. We cannot fully understand God. There are limitations on our understanding of God that we immediately must acknowledge if we believe in the true God Himself. First of all, obviously, our knowledge of God is limited by His revelation, His revealing Himself. I mean, it is vain for anyone who has been created by a great and mighty Creator to try and come up with, on their own, the accurate description of the God who made them. I mean, if God has revealed Himself, if God is truth and He is the truth, then of course our understanding is limited by His revelation of Himself. But the God being incomprehensible is talking about something much more than that. God is incomprehensible in that even the knowledge, the true knowledge that we have about God is limited. Our minds, ourselves, cannot fully understand God as He understands Himself. Think of it like this. Think of three kinds of knowledge. All true. The first kind of knowledge is the knowledge that God has Himself. It is a perfect knowledge, a complete knowledge. He has it of Himself. He has it of everything that He has made. And it's not just that He knows more than everybody else knows, although that's certainly true. But the quality of His knowledge is much more profound and deep. His capacity to really know everything fully and perfectly is far beyond any other kind of knowledge that anybody or anything would ever experience at any time forever. The mind of God is so high and lofty that He understands Himself and everything else perfectly and He alone. That is true. That is a truth of a a depth and quality that only God has. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Romans 11.33 His judgments are unsearchable. His paths are beyond tracing out. No one has known the mind of the Lord. No one has been His counselor who has ever been given to God that God should repay Him. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. And let's just face it, this is one of the things that just offends people. They don't like the idea that they are not going to be able to have perfect knowledge and therefore control of everything in their experience. I cannot accept a God, some people will say, that I cannot fully comprehend. That is not the right posture for a creature to take, is it, before the Almighty God? Our approach to the question of who is God, our approach to the question of our confession of God, is first of all to acknowledge the limitation that we have. We cannot know God as He knows Himself. There's a second kind of truth, and that is the God-revealed truth to mankind through their own logic and communication systems and experience. God has spoken to us, hasn't He, in history. He has revealed Himself. He's done it in different ways. Sometimes He'd speak actually audibly to the prophets. Sometimes He becomes incarnate. 
by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and walks around in the world and talks to his people. And we have a record of the speech of God where he is speaking the very words of truth. And then sometimes the Holy Spirit inspires men, prophets, apostles to compose in writing the very Word of God to the people of God. And it is written down. And that is perfect truth. There is no error in it absolutely at all in any sense. It is of a quality that is glorious and majestic. It is the Word of God. It is the speech of God written down for us. It is reliable and true in every way without error. And then there's a third kind of truth which the Belgic Confession falls into and that is simply our summary or the accurate description of the truth that He has given to us when He spoke or which we of course today have in the written Word. Now that's of a lesser quality you could say than the truth of God in the Scripture, right? I mean the Bible reveals very clearly, for example, the concept of the Trinity, but it doesn't use that word. And then we use the word Trinity to describe the basic teachings of the Bible. Now, is it true for us to use that word if the Bible doesn't use it? Of course it is. But it's kind of a third category. It's an accurate description. It's right. It's true. It reflects the truth of the Word of God. But all of our man-made words, all of our systematic formulations, such as the Belgian Confession are under the Word, of God, which, the Word of God which has been revealed. But they're true. They are right. What contradicts them is wrong. God is incomprehensible. Even the Belgic Confession cannot fully explain and describe the glories of God. And so we approach Him humbly as we consider this. Let's just look at a couple of the uh, words here that are mentioned when we talk about uh, God. It wasn't more than about a year and a half ago that we went through the Belgic Confession of Faith, so we're not going to repeat the attributes that we discussed at that time. Look at this word in Article 1. God is immutable. God is immutable. And that just means that God doesn't change. God doesn't change. It's not like a man or a woman or a child that they change that he changes his mind. God is immutable. He doesn't change. There are a number of biblical references which say that exact thing, that he does not change. To him, there is no shadow of turning, James says. But I want you to think about some of the attacks commonly today against this idea that God is immutable. People will say that our concept of God is not really a biblical one, but it's one that really goes back to old Greek philosophical concepts when the people were writing the classic theology that you people read today. They were immersed in Greek philosophical com uh, context and, and ways of thinking and they imported all of that into the Scripture and that's how they come up with things like the Belgic Confession of Faith to say that God doesn't change. They say, of course God changes. I mean, haven't you read in the Bible where God pronounced that He would do something unless people repented? And he certainly seemed, I mean, he said he was planning to bring, say, destruction into Nineveh if the people didn't repent at the preaching of Jonah. But then what happened? Oh, all of a sudden a few things change. 
Maybe Jonah preaches, the people repent, Jonah prays on their behalf, and all of a sudden now, all the things that God said He was going to do, He changed His mind because the people repented. Right? And see, now that's proof. God changes. He sets to do certain things in His mind, very clearly. He announces that He will do them, but then people pray, and then He changes His mind. Responding to the creatures, changing God is not immutable, they say. That's an old Greek philosophical concept that doesn't fit the God of the Bible. And what's our answer to that? Well, we acknowledge, right, that that's what the Scripture says, that God pronounced that He was going to do something, but then what? The people repented, and He did not follow the course that He had announced. The simple solution to that problem, so to speak, as if it's a problem, the simple solution to that problem is that not all of God's statements that He is intending to do something are declarations of His eternal will. So God may pronounce that the contingent end of a particular course of action by some people will result in this when God all the while knows according to His unchangeable will that He has ordained for those people not to follow that evil course but for them to change their course of action and bring about the end which He has ordained already. Not all statements in Scripture by God of what He is going to do are declarations of His eternal counsel and will. So when He presents Himself to us in Scripture as one who changes His mind or responds to people sort of when they act a particular way, and he could go one way or the other. He is not informing us that he changes his mind or that he changes his ways. All of these things have been declared, but he is revealing something about himself to us. In the case of the Ninevites, he's communicating how much he hates sin and how much he will judge sin unless people repent. He's also communicating his grace and his compassion and his mercy. Of course, he had ordained that he would not bring destruction on the Ninevites. He pronounced the judgment that they deserve for us to look and say, oh, that's what I deserve too. But see how he showed mercy to the Ninevites by sending Jonah to them. And see how he sends mercy to us even though we don't deserve it. And all the while, he was planning that he would have mercy on those people. God does not change. Part of the problem that we have with understanding God in general is that the only way He can communicate Himself to us or things about Himself to us is by using our own human experience and our own human way of living and thinking and being and personality, right? When God Himself is so much other than we are. So people are always tempted when they read the Scripture to make very dogmatic declarations about the character of God in this and that way. The problem with that is, he is speaking in the only language that we can understand. We have to keep in mind, whenever we are reading the Scripture, that God is far above human existence. He is transcendent. That's what the word means. He is a whole other category. He's God. And so when we see him revealing himself through human composition, whether it be emotions or actions or ways and means, we have to be careful. 
Remember that God is speaking to us in a language that we can only, the only language that we can understand, the language of humanity, to reveal uh, His own glory and divinity. So we don't want to compromise uh, Him and what it means to be God, His incomprehensibility, His immutability, His infinity, His invisibleness, His almightiness, because in some places we might, if we didn't know any better, get the impression He was just like us. That was Adam and Eve's problem in the Garden of Eden. You know, they just couldn't accept, they didn't want to accept the fact that He was God and they weren't. They wanted to make the decisions about what was right and what was wrong. They wanted to control the destiny of the world and their own destiny. Instead of just submitting themselves to the God who has revealed Himself and finding in Him what is right and good and what would bring them peace. God is eternal. You see that also there. Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. There are other terms that describe God. To fall under the category of Him being almighty. You've heard the word immense, perhaps. God is immense. That is, He fills every space. Not physically, but according to the power of His divine nature. He is everywhere and He fills every space. Will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain Him. Can anyone hide, Jeremiah 23 in secret places so that I cannot see Him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill the heaven and the earth? Where can I go from Your Spirit? Where can I flee from Your presence? The psalmist says. If I go up to the heavens, You're there. If I make my bed in the depths, You're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, settle on the far side of the sea, even there Your hand will guide me, Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. He is almighty. He is everywhere. He fills every space. He sees everything. He's God. Let's close with this idea. As we consider our God and how He has revealed Himself to us. Please, in your study of the character of God, or your study of the Bible's doctrines in general, do not turn him into merely a checklist of things that you can get down and then you've got it answered. I mean, if you are not learning, when you consider the glorious attributes of God, which he reveals himself to be this way, which he sets forth in his word, if you are not made to feel about this big, when you consider the revelation of God, then you haven't heard anything. This is one of the sad things in our data. Two extremes, of course. The one extreme is that people completely ignore the truth of God as He reveals Himself in His Word. They think it's a secondary thing, that religion is all about experience and that people shouldn't fight over you know, doctrine and interpretations of the Bible and the Word because that only causes division. 
When all the while those people are duped, right? The heretics come in the back door and unwittingly teach them to follow a God that has, is not the God of Scripture, not the God who has revealed Himself in the Word. But the other extreme is that people turn God into a list of propositions merely, right? Instead of just honoring the propositions and following the truth as it's revealed in the Word of God and summarized in the confessions that are faithful to that revelation, I think faith in God is merely checking off ten points of knowledge. And if you've got those ten points all straight, then that's the end of the day. Instead of acknowledging that God is almighty and glorious and also in addition to those things which He has revealed in revealed about Himself far above our comprehension and that there is mystery about God and the character of God. He is a personal God who is glorious far above even our imaginations and comprehension. He is eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, immutable, infinite, almighty, perfectly wise, just, good, and the overflowing fountain of all good. He is our creator and the one whom we confess and honor and glorify humbly as his creatures in his image. To that, all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Father, we also, in a hostile environment, to our worldview and to your glory, confess your truth. And it's uh, hard to imagine that you would uh, stoop down to reveal yourself to us, especially considering that we're part of the race which rebelled against you. And we pause to acknowledge that you are the Lord. And uh, we feebly and weakly uh, grapple after the truths you have revealed about yourself to understand you. And yet we acknowledge that there is that wisdom and that self-understanding that you alone have that is not even accessible to us in any way. And that you are to be praised for the majesty of who you are and the transcendence that you have over each of us. And how that humbles us and puts us in our place tonight. Causes us to look upon each other with love and care and no pride as if we had any claim over anybody else. Humbles us to confess our sins to you. Humbles us to go forward in thankful obedience and to give ourselves entirely to you. We marvel at your magnitude and your glory and your mercy to us tonight. The great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, whom we praise. Amen.